What up? This is episode 72 of Dart Against Humanity. So tonight, I just came back from MIT and I was at an event. The MIT sounding series, the wave function collapses. It was uh, the odd couple, which is DJ Rob Swift and uh, Mr. Sinister, uh, formerly of the X-Men slash executioners. Then you had the opener, Dilly. She's from um, the UK, uh, DJ. And then you had uh, Harbinger, spelled H-A-R-B-A-N-G-R, which is the um, brainchild of legendary music journalist and author and orator, Harry Allen, the media assassin of public enemy fame and also of Adelphi University fame, who was around for a few of the greatest hip-hop radio shows of all time at Adelphi University. Uh, you have um, Wildman Steve Adams at WBAU, but also you have um, Spectrum City, who were later known as Public Enemy. And then you also had um, <laughs> The Concept, who later were known as Original Concept. All those cats were signed by Def Jam out of these two or three radio shows at Adelphi University. And the person who was always there recording everything, taking pictures, was none other than Harry Allen. Uh, there was a presentation Harry did at Harvard, I believe, last year, where he brought a whole bunch of pictures that he took from the time. And also, um, he told the story about how he used to read the campus newspaper. And there was a, a, a comic strip in it, which was actually drawn by Charles Ridenour, a.k.a. Chuck D. And how he was a design student and an art student. And he also designed the Public Enemies logo using a stencil, using an old picture, the silhouette of um, E-Love of... Um, LL Cool J's original entourage. That being the case, I just came from <clears throat> this event. It was amazing. You had Dilly as the opener. Then you had um, The Odd Couple, which is Rob Swift and Mr. Sinister do a routine. And then you had Harbinger, spelled H-A-R-B-A-N-G-E-R, uh, perform as a DJ septet slash turntable orchestra doing these compositions. They did three of them. And this, uh, they called the room the Black Box at um, MIT's uh, theater building, W97. And your I was turning around in a circle watching everybody perform because I know who's doing what part. But I don't know when they're doing it, but I know if you're not scratching, who's scratching now? Who's cutting now? Whose section is it now? And they're like, they're switching off. So I want to see people as they're doing things. Some people are just standing in the middle and just nodding their head. And I'm like, I want to see the person as they do the cuts. I want to see their, like, what they're doing with their hands. Are they doing flares? Are they doing drags? What are they doing? Now, if you're somebody that's familiar with, like, DJing and turntablism, then these things kind of matter to you. A lot of people were seeing this type of art perform for the first time.
I was very interested to see how it was going to play out. I expected good things, but I believe that it went even better than um, Harry and, um, and Rob Swift had hoped it would. Another thing that they did, Rob Swift came in and he taught uh, four MIT students uh, the six basic or essential scratches that you have to chain together or use together in order to do like a routine or to be like a competent DJ. He taught them all these scratches. He says that over the full six days, they caught them all in the first day, but then they like rehearsed them to perform in front of a crowd. So four MIT students who had never <laughs> done anything with a turntable, maybe one that I think he said was familiar using controllers, but hadn't used vinyl and touched, you know, the fader or dropped the needle. All did it in front of a packed house live and they traded off of each other. They did four bars, four bars, four bars, four bars and four DJs. So just think of how amazing that is to six days earlier. You had you had never done something like that. And bam, now you're doing it. The reason I bring this up is because there was a conversation that was had, uh, of course, on Twitter not too long ago. And the question was asked. Well, somebody stated that hip hop had lost its um, value. And Rob Markman responded by talking about how much money and or revenue hip hop had generated. And I responded with and Rob doesn't respond to me anymore. I feel as though he still follows me or maybe has me muted. He doesn't want to get into a back and forth with me anymore about anything because who knows? But I, I can guess why. But my response to Rob was that, yes, of course, because the only value in hip hop that people jump to immediately is how much revenue it could generate or how much money it makes as opposed to its actual transformative value in nature, which is what I think of first. So when I talk to you about these things that I saw these DJs do in an academic in a setting uh, where academics and heads alike and hip hop fans alike were mingling together in a packed room. You have people that are completely unfamiliar with hip hop culture or anything or maybe fringe things involved with hip hop and rap that got to see the purest piece of the culture or the backbone of what the culture itself is built upon performed live both by professionals and masters and novices that gives you a full that gives you the full spectrum and gamut of what this culture does and means and its value to bring people together for uh, to teach them new forms of thinking and expression because I don't care how smart you are or how much your brain has been trained 
in certain aspects, being able to create and take something where it's, uh, Harry Allen explained it, the turntable was the end stage for some in terms of music. You take um, your record and you play the record. You don't use the turntable to make music using different records, manipulating different pieces of records, and then manipulating different instruments. You could use a turntable to substitute for the fact you don't have an instrument and can't play an instrument, but can manipulate pieces played by somebody else. And if you do it well enough, you can take somebody else's um, original piece and deconstruct it and make something brand new with it. Now, the transformative nature of hip hop culture, people think it's unique to just hip hop. I explain to people that all creative forms all follow this. The reason why there are tropes and themes in writing in film is because there's an old theme or an old idea or an old story or an old trope that was created in the 1700s, 1600s, 1800s, 1900s in a film in 1954 that has been added on and added on and added on and flipped and remixed and chopped and screwed until it's something new. So when people cry foul about this is an original, this is just this, what I like to do sometimes is take it back to the beginning. Actually, this is a variation on a Shakespeare play. This is a variation off a of Greek tragedy. This is a variation off of um fucking um Gilgam the epic of Gilgamesh you know like this is an old Babylonian Assyrian <laughs> story you know this is taken from the Incas uh, and then like it was transformed over here and then it was taken by these people a lot of the things that happened in like the biblical days were you have all these people in the region and they all commute and they all moved here and they all have parts of their old traditions and their old religions. And they don't want to switch over to Christianity because they don't want to leave behind these things that they did, or these um, rituals that they did forever. So what did Christianity do? It adopted a lot of them, but just switched it over and made it about somebody else. That's how you convert people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I could be a Christian if I means I don't give up this holiday, this holiday and this feast and this thing. But I got to do this extra now. Cool. So no statues. Oh, with their statues. But you said no statues, but there are statues. Don't worry about that. But there's always this thing where something starts one way and then over time. It changes into something else. Batman is Batman. But Marvel Comics turned Batman into like 10 other motherfuckers. Superman is Superman. Marvel turned Superman into 10 other motherfuckers. 
You know? Osiris is Osiris. Didn't you read some of Jesus' stories? You're like, um, this is what hip hop does. And it's followed a pattern that's already existed in art and culture and history before. Utnapishtim. Who's he? Then you read the Bible and you're like, um, fam, fam. Some of these stories sound similar. Did you watch a film in 2020 and you complain about how this theme or this idea or this was already used in a film from 1997, not realizing that the stuff that you saw in that 1997 film came from 15 films that go back to the days of the Luminary Brothers or the Lumineer Brothers or, or D.W. Griffith when he created uh, the first movies I and mean, he made the first movies that were commercially... Um, Put out there for everybody to go see. Nothing is really new under the sun, but there's always a new way to change it and manipulate it and make it new and add on to it and evolve. And that's what hip hop culture is. That's what it does. It's just another form of creativity. An expression, just like any other. However, due to uh, racism, it's seen as a lesser form. So to see turntablism on display at MIT Center for the Arts, Science and Technology at MIT was mind blowing because a man had an idea for how we could present a culture to people that may or may not fully understand it or even respect the culture on the level of high art that it actually is. And he pulled it off and it worked. And now all those people who had this preconceived notion or idea of what hip hop or DJing or turntablism was now know how complex and high-minded and how much work goes into it and how there are tenets behind it and how they are masters of it that study this discipline for decades upon decades. One of my favorite films is a documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Uh, if you haven't seen it, seen it, please, please watch it, find it, watch it. Um, Jiro approaches sushi the same way and dreams about it and creating and elevating the art and teaching others about it because he's so passionate about it and then making them go through the steps to learn and create and evolve so that they're finally ready to do the same and to be their best that it reminds me of growing up inside hip-hop culture. It was an each one teach one thing. And you had to seek out somebody who was, for better words, a master. You would find a sensei. It was like some kung fu film shit. 
Then you became an understudy. It was an apprenticeship type thing. You learned from somebody, you studied. They gave you um, lessons and you had to follow like these different things to do. It was, man, I was in Cub Scouts and I remember that the things that Akela, who was the Cub Master, was asking me to do was nothing in comparison, or the Cub Manual was nothing in comparison to the shit I had to do with the Floor Lords when I was a little kid trying to be a B-boy or trying to learn how to write graph and in that black book and trying to trace outlines and stuff or like hanging out with like the kids that were DJs and the records and the vinyl covers and trying to remember who played what or what label was this or what color was the label, D-Light, what the label logo looked like, you know, Solar, what's Taster, Spring, Sugar Hill, Constellation, like all those type of labels, Strata East, Black Jazz, I could just go down the list and just name defunct record labels no longer exist. But there's this discipline and this learning curve and these things that you have to do to become good before you can go in front of your peers and your contemporaries and feel comfortable to represent this art form or this culture. Because you had to get your hand, you had to get your hands dirty. You were going to be a contributor as well as a fan. You couldn't be on the sidelines. You had to be in it. And the transformative nature of hip hop is such that Wrangler jeans on their own aren't hip hop. But the way a B-boy, a B-girl rocks them can make them hip hop. Adidas on their own aren't hip hop. But B-boys and B-girls can do things in them, with them, the laces, wear them in concert with other clothing, and make them hip-hop. The Kango hat on its own isn't hip-hop. Hip-hop culture made the Kango hat hip-hop and gave it value. Hip-hop culture gave Adidas a different value. Hip-hop culture gave Casals frames, glasses, a different value. The Playboy logo was the Playboy logo. Hip-hop culture gave it a completely different valuation. Certain fonts <laughs> that you could find when you went into clothing stores were just the fonts you could find in clothing stores. Hip-hop culture gave those fonts a brand new valuation and changed them. So when you saw those when you saw those uh on clothing and on and on people's jackets, stuff like they gave denim jackets a new value. Hip hop culture is so amazing that it can do so much and change perceptions and reality, alter reality and define history. It's a fucking magic trick. It's a mutant power. 
That's what hip hop is. That's its value. But if you have never been immersed in it or never been exposed to this reality, then you don't value it the same way. And the thing is that for people who've never been into hip hop culture and only have been involved in the rap music business or only uh, just rap music and not the wider culture that birthed it, they don't see things the same way. They'll say, I love hip hop. And then they'll talk about something that isn't actually hip hop, but they think it's hip hop. And when you try to tell them that actually, no, you're talking about something that's not actually the culture of hip hop, they'll get mad at you because they don't know any better. They haven't been taught. They haven't been immersed in the culture. They haven't learned it. So then there's this resentment that exists between these creatives and these people that grew up with the culture or in the culture or were exposed to it versus those that really haven't been, but think that they know all about it and it belongs to them. So there's always that clash that I have where people talk about hip hop and who, who it belongs to and what it is. And they don't know a damn thing about hip hop culture. And they spout these versions of the origins or the facts of the culture that are completely false and off base and disturb me to my core. One of the reasons I do what I do is because I would like to teach. I would like to get involved in doing some of the things that, you know, Harry's able to do. He's been a fellow, I believe, at Harvard University. And now he's um, he did the uh, thing at, um, at uh, MIT. You know, I would like to be able to do this. Now, something that's amazing that's happened recently is um, I got a, a tweet telling me that my book was going to be used in the curriculum at... Um, Butler University in Indiana, and also that um, it's going to be used at uh, Johnson C. Smith University. For an independent book where it has, again, no PR, no agent, you know, no publicist, there was no one sheet that came out, there were no advanced copies sent of my book. Every, ver- every copy of my book was sent to someone who bought it. Even my publisher, I think, only had like two copies. And just because there were two people involved, there was the, the publisher and then the editor. I didn't have an advanced copy because all the copies that went out in the micro order immediately were bought. Like I had a sellout of my book and it was not available for three weeks to add. I've said this before, but it was amazing that that was an actual thing like When you sell out of a book on an independent publisher, first of all, it's amazing you sold out, but also it's fucking scary and agonizing because you're afraid that you're never going to get back what you lost because that happened to me during the holiday season. But that being said, just to know that my book is being used in hip hop courses already is mind blowing. And I haven't sent the email to Harvard, to Marcelina at um, at, at the Harvard uh, Hip Hop Archive about my book. I've seen her on two separate occasions. I have not sent. I've been so busy working on the other books.
but yes. The reason why I'm actually here today is because as a child, I was exposed to hip hop culture, but I did not experience hip hop first. Uh, Fonte said this in the, um, when he came to Boston and did a speaking engagement at the um, Gardner Museum. Uh, what up, Cat? Um, Cat Morris. He was talking about how his perspective on music was different because he remembers a time before hip hop. Hip hop was the new thing. So we had our parents' music, you know, the music that we liked, and then here comes hip hop. Our parents were like, what is this? I went to school, I told stories, um, I went to school and I encountered B-boys and B-girls, kids going to the floor, what are y'all doing? Then I want to do it. And then 1981, 2020 happens in July. We haven't been able to pinpoint the exact date. And you see B-boys on TV. Articles start coming out about them. And from New York, we have still pictures. Now, I've, I believe I made this comparison before. Skateboarding magazines, we would see still pictures of skateboarders them doing a trick still photography you see a b-boy in the middle of doing a um a power move you see a kid on a on on a, a skateboard in the middle of doing a, a, a maneuver i haven't seen it but i know what's happening but then when you see somebody do it in front of you either skateboard or b-boy you're like yo how did you do that with your body? How did you manage to do that? And the fact that you saw it happen in front of you, you know it's possible. And that changes everything. Hope is so dangerous. Let one person from your neighborhood become successful. Let one person in your family do something. That hope will reverberate throughout the entire fucking area. The possibility, it can happen. Lightning can strike twice. And then someone else does it. That turns everything around like, oh my God, it's possible. I was um, talking to my younger brother once. There was a movie, I think it came out in 85, um, Star Chaser Legend of Orin. The first 3D animated PG-13 film, I believe it was. Um, a lot of people said it was um, derivative of Star Wars. It was, but it was still really good. I loved it. I still think it holds up. Um, Zygon. So... It's all about people that are um, being subjugated, but don't know they're being subjugated and they're always told what not to do. So after all, everything that this one kid thought was what to do and what he should do, he learns it's a lie. He starts doing all the things he's told not to do 
And he realizes, holy shit, there's a whole world above me. There's a whole reality. Everything I was taught was a lie. And it's possible for me to reach the stars and do all these things I didn't know were possible. And he comes back for his people. And he goes back to uh, Mind World, I believe it's called, or Underworld. And he tells everybody, I've seen the outside. I've been to the world above. And I've touched the stars. And everybody in Mind World all of a sudden starts to believe and it changes everything for them. Because that one person went and did something and came back. That, I told my brother, I was like, that is the fucking story of everything. The hood, the struggle, you play ball, you make it, you become uh, successful, go to college, make it. Come a rapper, go off, make it. You come up with some task or something, or, or some hustle. You do something, you come back and give back to the community and let them know, hey, I ain't left y'all behind, but I want to let you know I'm just one. And if I did it, y'all can do it. To me, that is what hip hop culture or any creative form represents. Like I, Spike Lee, when he made She's Gotta Have It, of course, my sister went to Wesley College, came back with like the book of uh, like black um, cinema, she comes back from a semester of school. And I just, I'm like, hey, book. I read that book. I'm not supposed to read this book. I'm a kid. I remember reading that book cover to cover. I still remember it to this day. Mentions of Ivan Dixon, mentions of Oscar Michelle, you know, um, Ruby D. Ossie Davis. You know, um, Paul Robeson, the Emperor Jones, all these things. I just remember reading this book, um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, but Watermelon Man before that. Uh, there was the movie about the um, the three-day leave or four-day leave or something that was in black and white. Um, George Romero having a black hero in the first uh, Dawn of the Dead or the first zombie movie. All of these things I remember. But the thing that changed everything for me was Spike Lee making She's Gotta Have It, Black and White. It becomes a critical hit and it does really well at the box office. And Spike Lee as Mars Blackman introduces Run DMC on Saturday Night Live. Off of him making an independent film about Brooklyn. Then he starts doing fucking Nike commercials. And then he put out a book. A book about the making of She's Gotta Have It. And how he didn't have a car so he rode his bike. And he maxed out credit cards and how he finessed a crew and filmed a movie in his neighborhood for money and then scraped more money to get it edited and then got it screened. That happening, then that book, let me know, oh my God, it's possible to dream and achieve something.
in a different way. Or the first time someone in my neighborhood made a record and came out, there was this kid, uh, KMG, um, he used to work under um, Cornell Brown. I'm, I'm going to talk about him and all the other Boston uh, funk uh, all-stars and all the other stuff. It, some date later, I'm going to try to scrap together a book and tell this story. But he had Tough Track Studios, which was down. I live on Columbus Ave. It was down on Columbus Ave. Um, my mom used to work at a store that no longer exists, Brodick Drug. And he brought her the record, KMG Let's Party, which I still have. Look it up on Discogs. KMG, let's party, y'all. Let's party, y'all. Um, I think Dwayne Omar produced it. But the idea that someone from the neighborhood made a record. And then, of course, you had... Um, the neighborhood crew. TDS Mob. TDS Mob making records. TDS Mob... Uh, Members were working at the Tower Records, which was on the corner of Newberry and Mass Ave. So TDS Mob is making records and they're on the radio. RSO is making records on boot records and getting them on the radio. A-Train, a.k.a. Cublunk, is a beatboxer, is beating Buffy the Human Beatbox and Biz Marquee in beatbox battles from Boston. We have guys like Topper Carew, who made the documentary, the West Coast L.A. documentary, Breaking and Entering, which becomes the foundation for Breaking and Breaking 2. Topper Carew from Roxbury, Mass. Also had a show called The um, the Righteous Apple set in Boston with the Boston funk scene as the backdrop. Uh, you can find episodes on... Um, uh, YouTube. But the point I'm making is that every time somebody from here did something or made it to energetics, new edition, that sparked it. So we were like, hey, we can do this. Like this can happen. This dream is possible. And those are the things that like hip hop or any type of creative art can do for kids. I remember being the, the time there was this dude, um, Bostonian guy from the neighborhood, Wyatt Jackson. Wyatt Jackson became known for his work in the community, uh, doing poetry. Then he became a rapper, became a dancer, a b-boy. And he would always be in the paper. Wyatt Jackson, Wyatt Jackson. What's Wyatt Jackson doing next? Wyatt Jackson. Then he started getting into plays, you know, acting. And then Wyatt Jackson was in a group here and now that got signed to a record label. I believe it was Third Stone Atlantic. So Wyatt was another one of those dudes from the neighborhood that went and did it. That made us go, yo, it's possible. Tam Tam getting signed to a major label was another person that made us go, oh, she got signed to Island. Yo, it's possible. We can do this. Um, Tony Rose. Tony Rose with solid platinum records. Uh... And I believe he had another label uh, that he had Dwayne Omar on first called Project Boy. But he had us like, yo, it's possible. Maury Starr and Johnson crew. Uh, Larry Wu. Gordon Worthy. Wu and Worthy. Uh, Gordon Megabucks Worthy. These were more people that made us like, yo, it's possible for it to happen. Arthur Baker going to New York. And just being in the scene and pulling everybody else in with them. Like, yo, 
this can be done. And seeing all these people work with Tom Moulton, you know, and then seeing like um, John Luongo doing these things. And like all these cats come up underneath them. Molly Maul got on through Arthur Baker. Shep Pettibone got on through Arthur Baker and Johnson Crew. You had guys like Tony Carbone, you know. It was when you just think about all the things that you're sitting here like, it's not possible. I can't achieve my dreams. And then something happens that changes all that in an instant. Me being 44 and thinking to myself, yo, I'm never going to do shit. I'm just stuck in this rut. Then the book happens. Then the book does well. Then the book does even better than I expect. And now I'm in a different position now and doing different things because one thing happened and another thing happened and another thing happened and it changed my reality and changed my perspective and changed the possibilities. And I wrote a book about hip hop and other related things, but through the lens of hip hop. I didn't write about things that I would get paid for now that nobody would care about in two weeks. I wrote about shit that was a, that was longstanding and eternal and timeless concepts. Because I grew up in this culture and that's what I value. I don't care about the quick now. I care about somebody reading the shit that I wrote five years from now. And getting an idea of something that was preserved in Amber Forever. That's why um, when I do my research, I'm reading a lot of articles from 1975, 1980, 1985, 1990. And a lot of these perspectives and ideas are timeless and eternal. And some of these ideas are really dated but they are stuck in amber forever because they are a sign of the times and the era. I have read some takes about rap music and hip hop culture and art. Woo boy. From 1980, 1985 and 1990. And I'm like, these are five and 10 years apart. And the person's perspective on the culture and the art aren't that different. They still haven't understood or improved upon their understanding of what this culture or art is in 10 years. Sometimes they're from different generations. Sometimes it's from the same generation. And it's bothersome to me, but also cool because I get to understand where we came from. As far as as far as people's viewpoint and perspective on this culture. And I get to see people bristling at it becoming more popular and it taking over their their um, their precious uh, charts. White snake is getting knocked off the top warrants, getting knocked off the top by brown people. With funky ass beats. Sometimes wearing gold chains and hats. And it bothers them. And it makes them uncomfortable. 
and it makes them worry. Chuck D posted up um, the initial album cover before all the graphics went on it for Fear of a Black Planet. Before the Public Enemy in yellow and Fear of a Black Planet on black, I believe, was added to it. It's just the painting part. And I wrote, 30 years later, the fear still remains. Because, of course, the album Fear of a Black... And also, I something that's also crazy, too. The first time in all my research that I've seen a rap album in Billboard, them list the album release date before the album's released and not go into full press, um, uh, full press after the album comes out and after it's charted, which normally happens with Billboard when I, when I go back and I look at research. It's the first time I've seen an ad for a rap album and the release date more than a month before the album comes out. Never seen that until that issue of Billboard in 1990. And I had to pause. I was like, oh, shit. I've never seen that before. That's something brand new. Before. The album was already out, even in um, radio and records. I found uh, or it will be the week the single gets released, not the album. Or the the week the single gets um uh, released or serviced to radio, then the album maybe two weeks at the most early after the fact. First time I ever saw that, and I'm doing research for an article that should be up. Oh, in a few days actually, um. I'm not going to talk about what it is because I don't want anybody to try to write it. But nobody else is because nobody else knows the date. So what am I, who am I kidding? But anyways, look for it in the next week. Hopefully on OK Player. I'm going to have to get them to raise my rate, though. That's all I have to say today. One.